0: I have a question in mind, which I would like to know your opinion. What is the role of psychosis slash schizophrenia slash bipolarity and personality disorders in the human being? Why do they have to exist? And can't people living with it be free from this harm? could people living with these mental issues be helped through meditation? That is, to have better decisions over their actions and have a better life overall. Thank you again, but uh, then that's not part of the question, so I won't continue reading the rest. Um, Well, first of all, this is most Certainly opinion, because um, I am by no means an expert in uh, uh, psychiatry. Um, I've uh, studied a fair bit of psychology, but nor am I a professionally trained psychologist. So what I'm happy to do is to share my opinions based on... um, Whatever bit of bits of uh, scientific knowledge I have that have happened to come my way, and some of my feelings about this, from my experience working with people with these problems as a meditation teacher, And I'm going to assume that that's where your question comes from. Uh, if you were here what the first thing I would ask you is why you're asking these questions. And the two immediate possibilities is that you are either a psychiatrist or a psychologist, Um, secondly, or perhaps you discover, you suffer from some one of these disorders yourself. As for the first psychosis, one of the things that I do know about this is that um, although for a long time it was treated as a term which, uh, there was an assumption had a clear definition, um, at this point in time, I believe it's a term that is, uh, there have been repeated attempts to try to refine and create a meaningful definition of this, uh, and it, uh, It has produced some significant challenges, but essentially I think the level of agreement that we would find is that when somebody has uh, such a disordered perception of reality that it, it, it prevents them from being functional in the world to a serious and seriously impairing degree, and where it causes them to be, uh, or I should say, and, or where it causes them to be uh, potentially harmful to themselves or others. <clears throat> Schizophrenia, of course, produces uh, uh, psychosis, as does bipolarity. Um, Bipolar disorders um, I know that there are some familial tendencies with schizophrenia now there's a very sophisticated uh, genetic analyses available. there's probably more known about that than um, uh, than I'm familiar with, and I know there's somebody. Uh, in our audience today who could probably answer the questions of, uh, of uh, the role of genetics and schizophrenia much more accurately than myself. What I do know from contact with schizophrenics is that, and those that I've worked with, is that uh, it's a disorder that can be latent for a very long time. And then there can be uh, what's referred to, I believe, as a kindling uh, event, and that subsequently uh, uh, episodes the schizophrenic episodes become more serious, more frequent uh, and uh, uh, and to the point of uh, sometimes becoming continuous. Um, Bipolarity, uh, I know not from scientific evidence, but from uh, considerable personal experience, coming from a family in which uh, to a greater or lesser degree, everyone, including myself, has exhibited um, bipolar disorder. Uh, that there is quite obviously a genetic component in that. In all of these, and actually with any sort of genetic uh, component, there is uh, a huge degree of environmental uh, contribution to when, how, so on and so forth, these things um, develop personality orders from what disorders from what I understand are uh, probably the least well understood of uh, all psychiatric phenomena um, having known people with various personality disorders um, you know they the suffering that that they do they endure in some forms of personality disorders is just incredible and the suffering that they and others and those with other forms of personality disorder inflict on others is absolutely incredible. Why do they exist and can't people living with it be free from this harm? Why why do they exist? Why does any disease exist? Uh, You know, I just dabbled in some uh, uh, genetic and familial tendencies to answer that question, but they don't really answer the why. They're really more in the realm of the how. Um, The human mind is an extremely complex thing, I would say, and probably would have probably universal agreement that it is the most complex uh, bit of material organization, uh, physical organization that uh, that the human brain is, that we know of in the physical universe, and that the human mind, which is very much linked to the brain, is uh, just as complex. And um, so you're asking some, what are at least at the moment, some rather impenetrable questions. Can people living with these disorders be free from harm? Um, They can be managed to varying degrees, uh, just as they occur in varying degrees of severity. Um, could people living with these mental issues be helped through meditation? That is, to have better decisions over their actions and have a better life overall. I can answer yes to this, but uh, it can be helpful, but meditation is not Meditation is not intended to be, nor is it particularly effective for the treatment of these sorts of uh, severe psychiatric and psychological disorders, but it is helpful. Uh, For example, I have a student with uh, severe schizophrenia who through meditation came to a place and has been able to stay in a place of realizing that the voices in her, that she hears in her mind are originating from part of her own mind and that she need not pay attention in terms of acting upon or, or even feeling quite as badly about the things that they tell her, although they do still cause her suffering. Bipolarity, um, I know that um, many people um, seem to be able to cope with it more effectively and. Can recognize in themselves the processes that will trigger uh, either a manic or a depressive phase. And one of the things uh, that I do know about bipolarity is some will be more predominantly depressive, others will be more predominantly manic. And that, uh, for example, uh, I was predominantly depressive, but but my depression was always often triggered by manic instances, and meditation helped me to recognize when these things were developing so that uh, I could essentially uh, deal with them much more effectively and reduce their effects. By and large, this seems to have disappeared in me. But that's not unusual. Very often people with bipolar disorder, it disappears or becomes greatly attenuated sometime around the age of 50 or so. So I would never go so far as to say that meditation has been the solution to that. I have seen people with personality disorders learn to manage them uh, through a combination of therapy, medication, and meditation, but uh, there is a danger in certain personality disorders, particularly uh, sociopathy, psychopathy, narcissism, that to even become involved with a meditation group uh, or a spiritual group often triggers a behavior pattern characteristic of these disorders that, leads them to become, uh, uh, produces no improvement in them, but rather puts them in a situation where they're in a position to do uh, an incredible amount of harm by manipulating other people to their own benefits. My approach to all of these things is, I want to know whether people have these kinds of disorders before uh, they either join a uh, uh, group retreat or before they come to a solo retreat, I always absolutely insist that they take their medications. There's a strong tendency for people to want to stop the medications because there is a tangible effect that the medications have on the ability to meditate to certain degrees. And, of course, there's also the optimistic hope that somehow the meditation is going to magically relieve them. So I won't let somebody be in meditation under my guidance unless I have an absolute promise from them that they will continue to take their meditation, medications and that they won't change their medications without their... Uh, Uh, physician's permission and approval at any time. And then I do my best to guide them in their meditation practice in the ways that seem to be most helpful to those people. And I do find it helps. So what we have to understand is that Meditation is one part of a system that has eight parts, and it's designed not to treat people with serious psychiatric disorders, but to treat a world full of mental disorders that we take to be the norm the normal people are mentally ill, and normal people suffer because of mental illness, and the Buddha offered a system to help treat that particular mental illness, and that particular mental illness, uh, like many others, is characterized by uh, deluded perceptions of reality, and it causes them to suffer, and it causes them to inflict great suffering on others around them, not just other people, but uh, animals and even the planet itself, the entire biosphere, uh, the climate, and everything else this is this is the mental illness that meditation together with the other um uh aspects of of the eightfold path are intended to treat so I hope this helps put excuse me I I need to make sure that I seem not to have power to my computer for some reason is this this might be turned off uh, maybe. Oh, no. okay. Yeah, and you're going to lose me in a few minutes unless I figure out what's wrong here. Oh, here it is. <laughs> okay. Hold up. Great. All right. It's... <laughs> anyway. Thank you very much, David. I'm um, you know, just glad I noticed that in time before I just disappeared <clears throat> into the void. <laughs> <clears throat> anyway, I, I hope this... Uh, uh, reply was was helpful for um, was helpful for um, Gabrielle and perhaps uh, helpful for others as well. Hope I didn't spend too much, too much time on it. Let's go on to some, the next one, Fabian. Uh, Fabian here, bunny chats. Here's not. Okay. All right. Um, Howdy. Guess he knows where I live. (laughs) Uh, Howdy, Fabian. I was curious to see how you practice metta. You might practice what's laid out in TMI, but you have routines that are not mentioned. What are some resources you recommend? Or what are some... That have helped you cultivate loving kindness. I'm looking for practices not mentioned in TMI. Um, well, the I've, I've practiced many forms of of uh, loving kindness and metta meditation in in the past. Everything everything from chanting the Metta Sutta. Um, through, well, through the kinds of things that uh, Sharon Salzberg teaches, all of which are very good. The method that i provided in TMI is one that, uh, it's basically that what I've tried to do in that is to maximize the specific benefits that I found to be most important and the specific ways of practicing metta that I found to be most effective. Now, one of the things that you'll see as an assumption, uh, if you look at the metta practice that I offer in The Mind Illuminated, is that it more or less assumes that you already have a certain degree of attentional stability and unification of the mind. And um, one of my current students uh, has pointed out to me uh, that he still has a serious problem with mind-wandering when it comes to loving-kindness meditation, and uh, which is something that... Uh, um, I can see certainly see would be the case. The other thing is that uh, he uh, he was practicing a different uh, form of meta practice, and what he was finding is that he had great resistance to uh, uh, developing to to creating in his own mind. Uh, certain of the particular mental states that he that are part of the practice, the way I've, I've laid it out, and that those in turn would trigger for him emotional reactions, and in working with him on these, I, I pointed out, and he's been able to apply and use it that these particular instances of resistance. Are really pointing towards opportunities for purification of some uh, unresolved uh, psychological problems. And that really is part of the intention. Uh, One of the things that is characteristic of the way that I have uh, presented TMI that's different than the way many people uh, present uh, uh, meta meditation is that I save the wish for these uh, these things to be directed to yourself at the end. And the reason at, that's after you've already directed these things at the people that are most difficult in your life, because a part of the common neurosis that we accept as normal involves a certain degree of Um, feeling that we ourselves are not worthy of the uh, freedom from suffering and ill-will, the ability to dwell in a state of loving kindness and to be truly happy. And um, that's part of the way that I have set it up. Now back to the person who brought to my attention the... Mind wandering aspect. Um, <clears throat> he he offered me an excerpt from another meta meditation technique. Um, it is. Let me see if I can just find it here quickly, because it's yeah, it's valuable. I'm not seeing it anyway. It comes from uh, it comes from a method that's called um, well, I don't recall what the uh, the acronym is T W I M. And uh, it includes, the important point about it is uh, uh, it includes within it when you find your mind wandering that you. Uh, take time to relax and to investigate what is producing the tension in your body and try to understand uh, why you have become distracted when you have. And I think that that is really valuable. Having seen that, uh, I I immediately recognized the potential value of it and um, If you would like to, or if if any of you, well, maybe what I'll do is, if I can find the reference to that, is maybe I'll post it myself on Patreon so that uh, it's available to you. But if I were going to make a modification to the method that's in uh, TMI right now, it would be to add that relaxation component and to uh, recognize that um, for some people, the ability to uh, 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 practice meditation, that particular meditation is going to suffer from some of the same distractibility that you find in in the Samatha Vipassana practice. And not only that, that uh, when that happens, not only is it something that can be an obstacle that you'd like to overcome, but that it can also be very helpful uh, in the same way as the, the person who found that it was very difficult for them to generate certain, uh, certain mental states that are part of the uh, loving kindness practice. So, so, these are a couple of tweaks and additions that uh, would- So it's, uh, uh, it's budging, and it's the tranquil insight wisdom meditation. Tranquil Wisdom Insight Meditation, um, that's what it's called, and uh, by uh, this is a, a method taught by Bonte Vimalaramsi, I uh, haven't heard his name in years, I believe he's somewhere in Virginia or something like that, but I didn't, or Tennessee, someplace like that, and uh, um, many years ago, I, I had some interactions with Vante, uh, and uh, he's uh, uh, yeah. So if if you would like to uh, have a look at least at the uh, meta meditation that he offers, then uh, I, I when I looked at it, I saw some real value in it, and. Uh, would like to acknowledge and thank uh, Bhante Vimalaramsi for offering that to the world. So I hope that's helpful for you, Fabian, with regard to that part of your question. Uh, You have a sort of extra question here. I tend to spiral, get upset quite easily from things that come across online or thoughts, daydreams. Have any thoughts as why I'm more sensitive than average or what would you call it? Unfortunately, that's a question that I think you and I would have to sit down and and talk for a bit. It's not okay. The phenomenon that you describe is common. It's a question of degree, and so you've stated your 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 question um, very accurately when you say. Uh, it's not you're not asking why does this happen to me because it happens to everyone uh, but why am I more sensitive than average uh, and that is what I that is what I would call it why are you more easily triggered in this particular pattern uh, I'm, I'm afraid this isn't really the right venue to uh, to answer that question I I could probably launch into an extensive monologue about uh, why this pattern occurs, but I don't think this is the time and place for that either. So um, perhaps we will have the opportunity someday, you can come for a private retreat, you can contact me online, uh, something like that. And and I would be happy to uh, discuss this with you and talk to you about how you can use meditation to help you to uh, become less sensitive, to help you to understand why you're more sensitive than than average. So uh, I'm afraid that's the best I can do for you today, Fabian. Uh, Michael Walsh, are you here, Michael? Hmm. (laughs) Well, this is, this is quite a lengthy, and I did have a look at it earlier. And there's a lot of interesting things that are, questions that are raised here uh, and that I would love to deal with. But I think <clears throat> maybe the first thing to do is to see if there's some questions here from people who are present. Uh, the next question is from David. Is David here? It appears not. Okay. Um, how about Evgeny? If I, I hope I've pronounced your name correctly. Evgeny, are you here? Evgeny, perhaps it is. Evgeny. Evgeny. Oh, okay. Evgeny. Thank you. Evgeny. That <laughs> I'm sorry. I I don't want to butcher your name, but it's wonderful that you're here. And so let me look at your question. Um, How do you know when to focus more on meditation or on psychological psychological issues when it comes to personal growth? Meditation made me aware of, of a lot of underlying conflicts in my mind, some of which were alleviated by stage four purification, but many remain unresolved. How do I decide whether to simply meditate more or to start working with a psychotherapist on my shadow side or both? Um, Well, this... The kind of meditation that we're doing is inevitably going to bring these kinds of things up. And depending on the power of the mindfulness that you can bring to the situation, and we need to acknowledge the severity of the trauma or internal conflict or whatever it is uh, that uh, uh, characterizes these particular psychological problems, uh, that's going to determine how well meditation will be able to help you with these things. What we're looking at really is a process of integration. And that's where mindfulness uh, and where mindfulness is strong enough that you can remain fully present while you deal with this psychological material, this emotional and emotional, emotional and psychological material when it comes up, to be able to use your attention in uh, the particular way that brings about insight. And here we're not talking about super mundane insight, but a more mundane kind of psychological insight. So you have to have enough mindfulness to remain present you have to have enough mindfulness that you, uh, it allows your attention to function in this penetrating way without launching into the kind of uh, fabrications and storytellings and things like this that attention is very prone to. Uh, so if the problem isn't so severe that it overpowers your mindfulness, then it is very well worth uh, attempting to resolve these things and integrate these things within the meditation process. When you find it, you're overwhelmed by it, in other words, you begin to identify it and you lose that objectivity that is provided by your mindfulness, by your awareness, by clear introspective awareness that sees this as a phenomenon arising in the person that you recognize yourself to be at this time and that you're in a meditation situation where you're safe and protected and so on and so forth. If instead you begin to be emotionally overwhelmed, begin to relive whatever the situations are that these things are involved, then you need to stop the meditation at that point. Now, if this is something that, the fact that this happens doesn't necessarily mean that you can't continue to deal with it in meditation. But if it happens repeatedly, and if it happens very quickly when these things come up, then it is quite likely that meditation is not going to be the appropriate way to deal with it, at least not initially. And when that happens, this is something that you should uh, probably seek uh, the assistance of uh, a therapist with. Then perhaps meditation uh, as an adjunct to the therapy, can be very beneficial in helping you to resolve this. Or you might find that with the therapy, as an adjunct to meditation, it can help you to resolve it. Either way is, you know, it's just sort of two ways of looking at things, depending, which will depend on um, <laughs> which provides you the better method for the final resolution. but. Uh, you will you 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 could use both in concert, but sometimes the things that come up are so strong that uh, it's best to avoid them when they arise in meditation. Uh, do other forms of meditation, like loving kindness meditation, especially directed toward yourself, while you work with a therapist to to get these things under control. The It would be a mistake not to seek the help of a therapist because um, reliving traumatic situations um, or allowing internal conflicts to generate powerful states of, of inner confusion will prevent your meditation from continuing. They will prevent the unification of the mind, which is going to be most, well, it's it's really what has to happen for the meditation to really work. So that's one of the mistakes that uh, you can make with this is to try to persist in, in using meditation to try to solve a problem that meditation is not by itself adequate to deal with. The other thing that you can do is to find a way to bypass this psychologically or using some of the things that are referred to as spiritual bypassing, that you rationalize this in some way that uh, allows you to continue to practice without dealing with it. If you do that, it's going to come back to bite you, and it's going to bite you really, really hard. You hear people going on about, you know, what they've misappropriated the term from John of the Cross, of the dark night of the soul, to describe. People have serious, very serious and, and prolonged uh, suffering uh, when they do begin to have the arising of insight and that is the result of not dealing with these psychological issues before you come to the point of insight. So it would be a very serious mistake and it's one that I find is very commonly made in West. Western Buddhism, uh, just to borrow a term that is under current sociological debate and things like that. Western Buddhism tends to take meditation in isolation, use it in a way that can lead to insight and does, but to disregard all of the other components of the Eightfold Path. Now, when you do this and when you approach meditation in a way where you're encouraged to ignore these things, push these things to the side, or see them in a different light, which which leads to the kind of bypassing that I talk to, or that I talk about, then you're gonna reach a point where these can't be bypassed anymore, these can't be suppressed anymore. And you might be one of those people whose life falls apart. You might be one of the people for whom Something, if dealt with appropriately by a therapist at an appropriate time, would never have led to you being hospitalized and treated uh, for some psychiatric illness with uh, electroconvulsive therapies and with haloperidol and other powerful antipsychotic drugs and things like that. That is the danger of bypassing and ignoring these things. Um, If they arise, deal with them. Don't try to meditate through them or bypass them. Or if you, for some reason, don't wanna deal with them, then please don't continue on the path that is going to lead you to a situation where understanding the underlying delusion that you've been living in triggers these things to come to the surface in a way that you're not going to be able to deal with and that causes great trauma and that can destroy your life potentially, or at the very least, make you very, very miserable for quite some time. Um, So, Just back to your specific question, how do I decide whether to simply meditate more or start working with a psychotherapist on my shadow side? Well, if those parts of your shadow side come up repeatedly, if if you let go of them and withdraw from the meditation, when you become overwhelmed and go back to it and you find that you can deal with it. Uh, Perhaps you'll become overwhelmed again after a certain period of time and you'll need to withdraw from it. But if you can return to it and without this persistently happening, and without this happening so powerfully that when you get up from the cushion it it persists, If, if it just Tends to happen the first couple of times you confront something, or the first few times you confront something. And if you actually are able to allow these things to arise, then it's reasonable to see how far you can go with this meditation. But the very first inkling that this is something that the state that of, of development of your meditation skills and the severity of the problem are not matched to each other, then uh, run, don't walk to somebody who can provide you some spiritual help. Do the kinds of meditation that are gonna provide you with uh, tranquility and that are not going to bring up uh, these kinds of of traumatic things. So um, does that help? Uh, Um, I don't know whether I I don't know whether I'm addressing something that's personal to you or Whether this is uh, I'm just speaking to something that uh, uh, You would like to know in general perhaps you could say Uh, uh, Thank you so much. It's uh, it's really really helpful Uh, Yes, it addresses things which are uh, personal to me. I feel like in my meditation practice in order to progress more instead of meditating more, I need to focus more on my psychological uh, baggage. And so I need to focus on cleaning up and growing up instead of just uh, waking up. Yes, and that's absolutely true of all of us. And the only variable is whether or not, and to what degree, you need to seek other forms of therapy to help with that. But you're absolutely right, we all do that. We all have neurosis. We're all mentally ill, or we wouldn't need this sort of thing anyway. And actually there's a higher percentage of people with these kinds of problems that are drawn to meditation and spiritual practice anyway. So yeah, it's completely normal. But, But now I hope I've given you uh, some good guidelines to use as, as to the balance between therapy, what meditation can do and what it can't, and what therapy can do. And remember that therapy is only going to bring you back to um, the normal state of psychological uh, uh, of, of mental illness. <laughs> so once it's done its job, let, let meditation uh cure you the the common malaise we all suffer from. Uh, thank you so much. You're most welcome. Wonderful question. Okay let's see um Jake Stellman and then looks like we'll be going back to answering the questions There are people that are not here. I think I saw that Jake was here, is that correct? Oh, maybe I'm mistaken. No. Okay. <clears throat> I'm just looking at the at the comments here. It's interesting. Uh, based on the comments. I'd, I'd perhaps like to address one other thing. Um, with, if you practice the Eightfold Path and with sufficient cleaning up and growing up, with sufficient, with sufficient uh, purification, when you arrive at the state of insight, stages of insight and awakening. There may very well be, and it's quite likely there will be, uh, an unpleasant, painful thing that you have to go through. Um, But it's of a completely different nature if you have done sufficient cleaning up and growing up, if you have have the equanimity that comes from uh, the Samatha practices, the the joy and the tranquility and the equanimity, um, what you're going to be dealing with is not these kinds of, not resolving these kinds of psychological traumas, but you're going to be doing something that is nevertheless painful. Um, your mind is going to have to accept that nature, or sorry, that, um, that reality is not what you have what your mind had always assumed that it was. And this is like undermining undermining the foundation of of your whole way of thinking. Usually it doesn't last very long. What it is most like is confronting death. And some people talk about death of the ego and things like that, and that, That's either a misunderstanding of the term ego uh, or a misunderstanding of what we're talking about in the first place. Um, The more primitive parts of your psyche and those that are most closely connected to the emotional part of your brain have based everything around this idea that you are a separate self in a world of separate entities, and then all of the things that flow out of that. And what the whole thing adds up to is that the worst thing that we can conceive of is our own death, Unless we are already in such a, a state of severe suffering that the worst thing that we can conceive of is not to die. <laughs> right? But most of us, when we get to this point, it's going to be the place where what this really involves is the fear of death. And it, it's going to be like surrendering to your own death. And the result is going to be liberation. It's going to be the freedom that comes. Now, that, so this is something that that it is not unusual to experience. It's nothing like uh, a you know these prolonged traumatic experiences that are talking about. Um, even the descriptions that you find in the Maga and then Mahasi's progress of insight and things like that are overstatements of this because they're really addressed more towards, well they're they're largely misunderstood and misinterpreted. What I would liken it to is that you're standing looking at, at the magnificent landscape in front of you And you turn around and you see a man-eating tiger bounding at you at top speed with the jaws open and saliva dripping. And you realize that you're enjoying this vista from the edge of a cliff. And uh, what arises is that kind of fear of imminent death. And so you either jump off the cliff or you, Surrender yourself to the tiger, but anyway, either case, you go through that sort of episode of, of confronting the death really of the it's really the death of the conviction that you are a separate self, and the reason that that conviction existed in the first place and came into being is so that as an, as an animal, and we're all animals, just like the animals we evolved from, uh, it, it's how we survive. When we, when we sense a danger to ourselves, to our well-being, much less to our, 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 our very existence, uh, we react. And, and all these reactions in our mind and our body are designed to preserve ourselves. But we will go through that same kind of psychological uh, transition, that it, it, uh, but it leads to a different result, a completely different result. And uh, with adequate preparation, it doesn't last very long. And for some people, they don't even seem to experience it at all. So, now I thought I should add that bit of clarification because of uh, the the comments that uh, I see here. Okay. Um, As as Katayana says, can "Can suffering also be an opportunity for transformation through realizing the suffering created by one's mind? And uh, uh, next response is Eckhart Tolle says that he has his realization by extreme suffering. But I think that most people won't be that lucky. Ted Lemon says, sure, that's what Eckhart Tolle did it is a pretty unpleasant way to get the results, also risky because his other option was suicide and considered it. And Katsana goes on to say the demolishing of the ego is transcending. Uh, Yes, that demolishing of the attachment to the sense of self, recognizing that there really is no self, is absolutely transcending. That doesn't make it particularly easier to let go of at this most primitive and emotional level of our being, because it was built into us to help us survive. (laughs) Um, What would you say about the emptiness of suffering? You know, I, I would say that this is the absolute demonstration of the emptiness of suffering, is that when you discover what relinquishing the attachment of the sense of self, truly leads to, then you realize the absolute emptiness of it, that you realize by extrapolation that all of the suffering that you have ever experienced has been the result of the way your mind behaves. And is there your suffering is therefore just as empty as your attachment to self, it's just as empty as your craving for things that are going to make you happy and your aversion to things that are afraid that you're going to make you uh, suffer. Because the truth is what we crave is the pleasure and is the freedom from suffering. We make the mistake of creating these empty projections of things that we think are responsible for our pleasure. So we end up craving the empty thing rather than recognizing that what we're really craving is pleasure. We end up having aversion to the empty thing rather than realizing that it is the very aversion that we're experiencing that causes our suffering, not the empty thing. So. Um, Dennis says, interesting that many of the experiences of enlightenment recounted by advocates of Advaita Vedanta come about at a point of a near-death experience and a final giving up or surrender that often brings them to that point of enlightenment. I'd say yes, absolutely, that yes. That's not only interesting, it's very illuminating and it can go a long way towards helping us understand what is a healthy and normal part of the path to awakening and liberation, and distinguishing that from what is an unhealthy and essentially pathological experience that can be triggered by insight and delay or even prevent subsequent awakening from occurring. You know, these so-called dark night things. These, the more severe versions of the uh, adversive effects of meditation that. Willoughby Britain and others talked about um, Daniel and people like that, okay, so I hope you all find that helpful, <laughs> probably something that some of you already knew quite well anyway, but okay, so let's see. Um, Yes, Jake's question. <clears throat> I'll go back, and before we do Jake's questions, let's look at the other. I think uh, Michael Walsh's long series of questions here. It says intellectually, I'm struggling to reconcile whether reconcile having worldly goals in my life with the mission of awakening. It seems like having career goals, or romantic attachments, sexual desires, worldly life. These are ultimately delusions based on craving and narratives about the self. Um, Wouldn't the eradication of craving mean ultimately abandoning these things as superficial and the subsequent adoption of a monastic-like lifestyle? Let me deal with the first two and then I'll go forward here from that point. Okay, it seems like having career goals, romantic attachments, sexual desires, a worldly life, these are ultimately delusions based on craving and narratives about the self. Um, Having career goals in itself is not the result of delusion, but the way most people's career goals come about is through delusion. But um, was the Buddha's career goal the result of delusion or having overcome delusion? Okay, so we've got to distinguish romantic attachments. Well, there are a lot of delusions involved in romantic attachments. As a matter of fact, most romantic attachments are transactional in nature They involve a lot of uh, unhealthy craving, and and, uh, to the degree that they are attachments, that's because of the craving, because in in the links of dependent origination, remember that it's craving that leads to attachment. Um, Most romantic uh, attachments take the form of if you satisfy my needs, I'll satisfy yours. And so they're basically transactional and, uh, and that's the danger in them. Loving someone and being in a relationship with them is not in itself ultimately delusional and does not need to be based on craving the narratives about the self. Sexual desire is a desire. Sexual enjoyment is a whole different thing and we could talk about that at a great length. You say, wouldn't the eradication of craving mean ultimately abandoning these things as superficial and the subsequent adoption of a monastic lifestyle? In Embedded in this particular statement, I see the very common and very prevalent misunderstanding of craving, of desire and aversion, okay? Um, The eradication of craving would mean that what you do with your life and the aspirations you have for that, what you might call career goals, would arise out of wisdom. They would produce satisfaction. They would be beneficial to yourself, to others, to the world. And it's because they would not be arising out of craving. Uh, Same thing can be said of relationships, uh, sex, all of these other things. Now, some people mistake craving for experiencing things as pleasant and unpleasant. It's made very clear by the Buddha that that is totally different than craving. It's in a different category. It's called Vedana, or Vedana, as people often say in English. And it means specifically pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And it is a quality associated with everything that we, every experience we have, every dhamma that arises in our mind. All phenomena are associated with the a hedonic experience of pleasant, unpleasant, and, or neither. Um, and this is not what craving is about. The Buddha experienced both pleasure and unpleasant uh, sensations and experiences. He, what he didn't experience was the mental suffering in response to the pleasant and unpleasant. He didn't experience the craving for what he saw, what he at one time would have mistakenly seen as the source of the pleasant and unpleasant. The experience of pleasant and unpleasant is something that's built into us evolutionarily. The definition of sentience is the capacity to experience The qualia of pleasant and unpleasant, even in an organism that is so primitive that that's the only qualia that it experiences. And of course, the term qualia refers in a human being not just to pleasant and unpleasant, but also blue, red, green, yellow, etc. Salty, bitter, sweet, etc. Pleasant touch, uh, unpleasant touch, uh, heat, warmth, coolness, uh, softness, hardness, uh, liquidity, solidity, all of these things. These are all qualia. And the most fundamental qualia of all are um, pleasant and unpleasant. And we're not, about to eliminate those because we're not with them would have to go all of the other qualia and we just end up being um, I don't know what we would be <laughs> uh, I, I, I you probably have the mental capacities of a microbe or something if we, if we did that because these are the fundamentals of what our consciousness is, is built up out of Craving does not mean to find things pleasant and unpleasant. It does not mean to have a pref- not to have a preference for the pleasant over unpleasant. If, if the Buddha is sitting in the sun uh, and becomes uncomfortable, would he not have the sense to get up and move into the shade of a tree? Uh, if you offered the Buddha a dish of ice cream or a dish of uh, canned cat food, uh, would he not be more likely to choose the ice cream than the cat food? <laughs> I mean, get real, okay? That's not what craving means. It also, some people mistake not having craving for not having emotions. And I think we've already talked about that. Um, what What is craving, then? Well, the word that the Buddha used was tana, which literally means thirst. And if you think about thirst, you'll know, you'll understand much more exactly what craving is. Craving has a powerful element of compulsion to it, and that's why thirst is a way of describing it, okay? How often have you been truly thirsty? Everyone has been at some time or another, but it doesn't happen all the time. Most of the time, you never become thirsty. You never experience Tana with regard to water because we just naturally, uh, we have these physiological responses of the body. Our mouth is dry or we just gives rise to the thought that Gee, it would be really nice to have a glass of water or a cup of tea or something like that so that we normally stay sufficiently hydrated, so that we never have the need, that we never enter into that state of tanha where our dominant thought is, how can I get some water? This desperate compulsiveness. So craving means when you have that thirst, for some material object, or when you have that powerful uh, compulsion to eliminate or escape from something that is making you uncomfortable or, or is unpleasant. Craving is a reaction to what is pleasant and unpleasant. Once again, we can refer to the links of dependent origination. Contact leads to Vedana. Vedana leads to craving. Okay? The craving is a, is a reaction. And it involves mistaking the inherent built-in desire to move toward pleasure and to move away from what is painful. Except that in our minds, we expand that way beyond what is physically unpleasant or painful, and what is physically pleasant and satisfying, you know, there, the, we experience pleasure eating the kinds of things that are healthy for us, except in the modern world, those things are much more available than they would be for uh, the forms of human beings that developed that. And so it becomes, uh, you develop Uh, a craving, a thirst for something where originally the only reason that it was, that caused you uh, pleasure was that it was good for you. Take, for example, a craving for sugar. The only source of sugar in the natural world is fruits and berries, things like that. And these are good and healthy for a hunter-gatherer. When When you get supersized colas, that each of which contains a half a cup of pure sugar, that's a totally different thing, you know. So craving is the compulsion that arises from the natural tendency to pursue the pleasant and to avoid the unpleasant, which is just a simple survival mechanism what replaces it in somebody who is who has overcome that craving that craving by the way is rooted in the attachment to self in somebody who's overcome craving and completely overcome the attachment to self what then why do they get out of bed in the morning why would they do something why would they do anything well There needs to be some kind of compulsion. But that compulsion is rooted in compassion, in true compassion, in the recognition that while there is no one who suffers, there is still suffering. And the compulsion to act in order to reduce the avoidable and unnecessary suffering in the world. The Buddha had a career path. Many people have career paths that are not based on becoming rich and famous and powerful, but rather on on making a difference in the world, doing something that is for the benefit of all beings, or doing something that is at least for the benefit of some beings and not at a cost of suffering for others. So there are very wholesome motivations for having a career, for being in a relationship, for even for engaging in sexual uh, activity. All these aspects of the worldly life uh, are not, they don't have to be abandoned. Say, would an awakened being even have a calling in life? I think I've answered that. Yes, they would. They would have one that is based on the compassion that they experience, on the recognition that they are not a separate self, that as long as there is suffering, it's as much their suffering as anybody else's. And they would therefore have just as much wish to, but not the compulsive craving which would eliminate that suffering despite however much other suffering it might cause someone else. Rather, the compassion based in wisdom, the compulsion that would rise out of realizing that so long as there is any suffering, so long as there is any sentient being who is subject to suffering. And remember, pain is, pain is a different thing. Pain in the realm we live in, is an inevitable thing but this suffering is not and particularly unnecessary and avoidable suffering so that would be the calling of someone who is awakened they might be a writer just for that purpose alone not to be famous and to have huge royalties and things like that they might be a scientist a scientist in order to make positive change in the world A scientist who maybe devotes themselves to trying to find solutions to the problems that we've created through the abuse of the technology that has arisen out of science. So they could have a calling to do all kinds of things. Uh, It would only depend on their imagination. Yes, they could be a famous artist. Whether or not they're famous, the only thing is if their art was intended to be beneficial to the world, then the more famous they are, that would just simply mean that they had reached more people. They wouldn't want to be a famous artist for the sake of the fame. They would want to be an artist who makes a difference and fame is part of making a bigger difference. You understand the distinction there? a CEO, Yes, corporations. The fundamental nature of a corporation is that its sole purpose for existence is to make money for its shareholders. It has no other purpose. And someone could wish to become a CEO for the sake of guiding a company to not do this in ways that were destructive or exploitive or in other ways unwholesome? Why wouldn't an arhat become a CEO, a scientist, or artist, or anything else? Isn't the motivation behind these creative activities ultimately craving? And 99.999% 99.999% of the cases it is. That doesn't mean it has to be. Craving is a compulsion that's rooted in self attachment. Compassion is a compulsion that is rooted in loving kindness, in sympathetic joy, in realization of the true nature of things. Would a Narhat have sex? Would they want to, if desire was truly gone? Why would they, why would whether or not they did or did not have, be in any way different than whether or not they would become a CEO or an artist, or a groundskeeper for that matter. It would depend on the motivations behind it. What's arising out of self-clinging and what is arising out of the compulsion that is craving? That's the difference. Aren't worldly goals just delusions based on craving? Absolutely. Worldly goals are well stated and they are uh, pleasure, pain, gain, loss, uh, fame, uh, infamy, and uh, praise and blame, okay? They're called the eight worldly dharmas. These, these are the things that, that uh, these are the worldly goals that are the delusions are delusions based on craving. These are the things we desire and experience aversion towards. Um, How do you reconcile living a modern Western lifestyle with fetishes, achievement, career, sex, fame, and finding a romantic partner as the ideal forms of happiness with the Dharma which sees through these things? Well, depends on what you're trying to achieve. Right? I think I've kind of explained that, uh, and I hope you can see that, yes, these, these worldly goals, what we're talking about here is achieving a kind of wisdom. Why would you need, for yourself, or why, or let me put, it, I put that differently, why would you want for yourself anything more than you need for your own health and well-being? And why would you not want to then use any surplus uh, that you might acquire for the benefit of others? Craving and self-cleaning, that's why. So without those, you wouldn't want more than you need. And if you end up with a surplus, you'd want to find some way to use it. So you can live in this modern world without being of it in the sense, like the, the analogy of the lotus, which grows out of the mud <laughs> but is not a part of it. It is above it. This is what the whole Dharma is about. It's not about abandoning the world. It's not about being devoid of experiences of pleasure uh, and, 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 and pain. It's not about being emotionless. It's not about any of those things. It's about understanding things as they really are. It's about living in the world, being a part, recognizing that you are a totally inseparable part of this totality and playing your role within it through a place of knowledge and wisdom rather than delusion. In other words, joining in the dance of suchness rather than trying to drive the dance yourself because you think you know better (laughs) than suchness. It's, It's coming, it's just living and being a part of everything totally, fully. It's not about withdrawal. There's a place for withdrawal in in the process leading up to awakening and wisdom. There will always be times where withdrawal is desirable, but it is not about that kind of withdrawal. It's about becoming fully what you can be in the deepest sense of the word, what you really are and what you were always meant to be and to the degree that you are a human being, it would be to help all other human beings and beyond the human, all other sentient beings to likewise live from a place of wisdom rather than delusion, to be free of the kind of suffering that that delusion gives rise to, and to join in the dance of suchness, in the evolution of suchness. So, I say this, you know, I'm back to quoting here, that uh, modern life seems designed to provoke craving in us. It is, people make a lot of money by provoking craving in us. I, people gain a lot of power by provoking craving in us. I practice around stage nine and I consider myself to be very happy, but the pressures of the world, like finding a job, providing for the future, chip away at my happiness. Yeah, I'm sure they do. I say this, but I also feel like sometimes the Dharma, or at least the call to renunciation, can be life-denying. Uh, no, it, it, it's not life-denying, it's delusion-denying. And yes, you know, uh, the, living in the world is going to um, produce uh, causes for unhappiness and chip away at your happiness. All the more reason to discover happiness within. All the more reason to become independent of the things of the world for your happiness. And likewise, to be free from any kind of mental suffering that is in reaction to things of the world. You say, I say this, Or you say, but then I wonder if that's just me rationalizing, not wanting to give up things like sex or being an artist or achieving something with my life. Well, it may be. And I hope not. But if it is, hopefully the things that I've said today will help you to change that. These worldly things are fun and there is nothing wrong with having fun. As a matter of fact, if you want to know what your real reason for being is, You're only here. We're only here to have fun. It's just that we don't understand what that means. These worldly things are fun, but they also come with stress. But at the same time, I don't want to, to, in this stage of my life, live like a monk, even though I know it's all ultimately ridiculous. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, that uh, life's too valuable and important to take seriously. Right? And the only thing that's really fun are the things that arise out of wisdom, out of knowledge and understanding of the Dharma. Now that's real fun. That's not the, the weak facsimile of fun that we try to cling to and that never lasts. And there really wasn't that much fun when it's over with either. Right? Yeah, we're here to have fun. The right kind of fun, fun that comes from the right place. So, say there is a conflict here. I feel between Western values and Dharma, says which it is to give up worldly things. Western Buddhism seems to say you can have your cake and eat it too, while using techniques that were originally designed for monastics retreating from the world. Western Values uh, are driven by delusion. Global values are driven by delusion. The Dharma is about overcoming that delusion, not about giving up world things, worldly things. It's about being a part of a world in a healthy way, okay, in a wise and compassionate way. Uh, Western Buddhism is... Can, has within it a lot of misunderstandings of what the Buddha taught. Uh, the Buddhism that has come to us from traditional Buddhist countries has within it a lot of misunderstanding of what the Buddha taught. Um, what we mistakenly think of as traditional Buddhism came into being in reaction to contact with Western European civilizations during the colonial era. It's only a couple of hundred years old. The traditional Buddhism before that goes back to an era of about the time of the Siddhi and things like that. It also misunderstands many of the things that the Buddha taught. What is called early Buddhism by scholars, which is in that period between, um, well, it's that, that period prior to the when the Magga was written, and it includes a period prior to when uh, the Pali canon was first written down, which was right around the uh, uh, first century, and the and Sanskrit canons were written down about a hundred years after that, five or six hundred years after the time of the Buddha. There was a time when Buddhist, Buddhism became monastic, when Buddhism was competing with other religions. Buddhism became a religion in competition for support from kings and emperors and wealthy people. And at that point, much of what the Buddha taught began to be lost. If we go back to what the Buddha really taught, and in some ways, Western Buddhism is trying to do that. Western Buddhism is trying to recover the original Buddhism, but it has brought its own misunderstandings to the misunderstandings of the post, uh, of the, uh, what's the term for it, uh, the modern Buddhism that developed in Buddhist countries during the colonial era. era It has to overcome the distortions that developed um, in the period of traditional Buddhism from around the time of the... Uh, uh, of the 3rd uh, uh, to 5th century, uh, uh, up until the time of, of the uh, Buddhist modernism that developed in Thailand, Sri Lanka, Burma, uh, Japan, everything in reaction to Europeanism. So for Western Western Dharma to achieve its goals and, and to recover the original Buddha Dharma, out of the Buddhism of the world uh, it has a long way to go. And to the degree that it says you can have your cake and eat it too is one of those misunderstandings. What could appear to be that is that you can live in the world and make a difference in the world and be a positive influence in the world and do it from a wholesome and awakened standpoint so that's that's what Western that 's the goal of Western Buddhism whether or not it will successfully achieve that remains to be seen okay and apology uh, you you finish up by saying well let's deal with the thing of monastics retreating from the world at the time of the Buddha he encouraged people to leave the the uh, the life of, of and, and take up the life of wanderings and leave uh, family life. Um, and he said the family life was full of dust, and dust obscures. Um, and so it was. It's easier. It was easier to give up those things and to achieve awakening. But I don't think the Buddha ever. Intended that that would that was meant to say that was the only way, it's just uh, it was just a way at the time that seemed appropriate. It was a time when there was plenty of surplus and lots of uh, uh, respect and admiration for mendicants and things like that. So it kind of worked at the time. Monastic Buddhism, though, if you look at monastic Buddhism, it's managed to. Preserve the teachings. Its good side is it's preserve the teachings, but in kind of a fossilized form. Its downside is that monasteries have been the wealthiest places amongst the wealthiest places, other than the pe- people, very rich merchants and kings and and other you know powerful rulers. The monasteries have been the wealthiest places in uh, in Buddhist countries. That tells you something right there. Something about the essence of Buddhism was lost by the time Buddhism reached that that, that kind of level. There's no need to give up worldly things. It's need, it, the need is to change your relationship to them. Withdrawal from the world can be conducive to that as long as it's not limited to that. If it's limited to that, and I mentioned the story earlier of, of a of a monk who went off by himself and thought he had attained awakening, yet he hadn't. And he discovered that he hadn't. So that's what I'd like to say about Western Buddhism. Now you finish up by say, apologizing, apologies for my meandering. Well, I apologize for my meandering that was caused by your meandering and people are either going to be glad we both meandered or else um, they have my sincere apologies as well as yours. <laughs> okay, but I enjoyed my meander and and I, I hope uh, others of you did too. Um, so I think we'll have to save David and Jake's questions for a makeup session, which uh, we're due to have one anyway. So anything anybody would like to say? I've gone... Overtime as usual, but um, um, I'd be happy to hear from you. I'm going to look in the comments there and see what people have said. Um, uh, Dennis, a more technical question. I'm curious how you would characterize Zhen's Shikantaza in relation to TMI. How does it fit into the scheme of Buddhist meditation? Also practices like Mahamudra and Dzogchen. How does TMI relate to these practices? TMI includes Mahamudra uh, as uh, an insight practice. Everything from stage, uh, every practice that's offered from stage seven on, is an insight practice. Uh, Even the body scanning of stages five and six are insight practices. And so is the whole body jhana of stage six and insight practice. Uh, So Mahamudra, Mahamudra, as it was traditionally taught, and as it will find if you go to, if you read, uh, about Mahamudra, and if you go to a competent Mahamudra teacher, you'll find they teach Samatha. They teach the first six stages before uh, or really they teach the first seven stages before you start practicing Mahamudra. The modern tendency for a layperson with no mind training at all to jump into Mahamudra is um, is um yeah, it's not compatible with that. And that's a mistake. And the people that are doing that are just catering to uh the very thing that characterizes modern Western. We want, we want it now. We want to have dessert first, right? We don't want to we don't want to do the work. We want immediate gratification. And there are those who are willing to deliver that. Chen is a different approach to the same thing. Um by Pointing out, but ultimately it leads to the same thing. It leads to shamatha and it leads to the state of mahamudra. Totally compatible with TMI. Shikantaza is kind of the opposite of TMI, Um, because TMI is a sharing of experience in a way that can help a person to uh, actually find. Find the door that leads out of the darkened room. Uh, Shikantaza means you have to keep bumping up the wall until you find the door. Um, it does bypass a lot of problems that arise out of a systematic method that that is presented in uh, terms of, of goals and achievements, but it brings its own problems. And that's going to be true of any method that you look at. It's going to avoid some problems at the cost of other problems. And so, um, PMI is quite happy to stand with its arm over the shoulders of the Shikantaza, and say, say, hey, we both have ways of of, of helping you. So you know, choose the one that suits you best. Um, Katsyana, would you say that awakening as a worldly person is much more difficult, hence the Buddha's admonitions about renunciation? Uh, yes, I, I would say that. But even more, I would say what uh, uh, Geshe Dorje said to me in a conversation where I brought up lay practice versus monastic practice. Uh, he said that for a lay, the lay practice is much more difficult but much more powerful than the monastic approach. The monastic approach is easier but not as powerful. And I already told you a story to illustrate what he means by that. But this is coming from someone who is the abbot of a tantric monastery and who is also on the faculty, uh, I believe he's still on the faculty, Uh, University of Arkansas, and is the most popular teacher at that university. Okay, so Tatiana said bye after that. Majority of any Sangha has the lay people. Would you agree that a famous awakened being be capable of an enormous impact in the world? Uh, In the suttas, the Buddha enumerates a long list of lay practitioners who stand out It's not a list of the only lay practitioners that uh, became awakened, but it's a list of lay practitioners who became arhats and what their special virtues were. And uh, the number one he mentions is the layman named Chita, who he regarded as the best teacher of the Dharma of all of his students, lay or monastics the layman cheetah was the best teacher of dharma. Does that answer the question? (laughs) Yes, thank you so much, as always. (laughs) After the time of the Buddha, unfortunately, after the time of the Buddha, um, lay people practiced a different kind of Buddhism, which mostly consisted of trying to develop enough merit to be reborn In a position to become a monk, and of course that meant if you were female, you had to gain enough merit to be reborn as a a male. (laughs) Um, I mean, is is that different from what the Buddha taught, or what? Uh, I mean, uh, read the what's called the Terigata. These are all sayings of uh, uh, teachings of awakened women. um, read what the Buddha had to say about laymen and, and the layman Cheetah and so on and so forth. You'll see. Okay. Um, <laughs> thanks, Ted. Do you think the same happened with Christianism? Uh, well, mm. I, I think the is to that it would be a pretty obvious yes. Um, in Buddhism has probably done a better job of preserving what's considered to be the mystical side, even though uh, even though it's developed a lot of long wrong turns on the path, um, but there are still Christian mystics, and I would say modern Christianity is beginning to undergo the same transformation that I referred to as what Western Buddhism is trying to do. Western Buddhism is trying to get back to the original Buddha Dharma um, in a stop and start and difficult way against huge challenges. And so is a significant segment of Christianity that is practicing contemplative prayer, that is studying the Christian mystics and trying to understand that aspect of Christianity. So there is, there's a wonderful, the same thing did happen and we look forward to a recovery from that, the same reasons. What resources do you recommend for reading the original Buddha Dhamma? Um, If you read the suttas, and you'll find I'm not the only one saying this, by the way, but I, I said this before I knew there were other people out here saying, saying the same thing, other scholars. The first thing you do is anything you see that you recognize as belonging to some other religion that either preexisted the Buddha or was contemporaneous to the Buddha or developed subsequent to uh, uh, Buddhism, be highly suspicious of it, there is a small chance that this is an aspect of Buddhism that had been discovered by some other religion. There are things within Advaita Vedanta. I would say Advaita Vedanta is the closest to Buddhism of any other system of teaching that I know, but it is presented in very different terms. Okay, but if you read the suttas and you find something uh, that you know is a part of uh, the religious beliefs prior to the Buddha, during the time of the Buddha, or subsequent to the Buddha, you be very suspicious of them because 99.9% of them are things that were introduced later. Um, Secondly, anytime you find a contradiction or something that is contradictory in Buddhism, something that is inconsistent, look at that and recognize that that is the result of a distortion. The Buddha was a brilliant person and he didn't teach things that were contradictory and circular and confusing. Okay? Now, when you come to these kind of contradictions, you'll have to find a means to resolve them. But one of the means is to look if if, if one limb of the contradiction belongs to other religions. Okay? Second, and another thing you can do when you come to these kinds of contradictions is look for a place in the sutta where the, Buddhism took, where the Buddha took something and redefined it. Like the sutta where he says when I say karma I mean intention. And then everywhere after that when he says karma, don't understand it as that my actions are going to have moral consequences that uh, so that, you know, if, if I do harm, the same harm will be done to me, if I do good, the same good will be done to me. That happens, but that happens due to simple causality. If you're a good person in the world, people will treat you well. If you're a bad person, people are going to treat you badly. You know, I mean, that that's, has nothing to do with karma. Karma is intention. And karma uh, and intention both leads to positive causality and negative, uh, and negative intention leads to negative causality. But the important thing the Buddha was pointing out was that intention as karma makes you a person who is less self-attached, who is less prone to acting out of craving, and who is moving himself closer to wisdom and understanding. And the opposite is true. Uh, So, when Buddha redefined intention. Buddha took the idea of reincarnation and made it into rebirth. And what was he talking about being, being reborn? Reincarnation talks about this self, this imaginary self that we think we are, actually acquiring a new body after this body dies. Reincarnation uh, you know, in uh, uh, European language, you know, uh, uh, car- the carne part, that's I like carne in Spanish, it means meat. Remeatification, that's, that's what that means. Remeatification of what? Of the imaginary self. The Buddha took that idea, which is very popular, and he said, the self is an illusion, but it's an illusion that keeps being reborn over and over again. When a child is born, and modern modern psychological studies have affirmed this, that within the first three years of real life, the, the self gets reborn. For that matter, for an ordinary person, the self is constantly being reborn. What they don't notice is that in different situations, a different self gets reborn that they have a whole collection of selves, like clothes in the closet, that they put on for different occasions. They don't realize that there is no permanent and abiding self. It's a self that's reborn. It's a self made up by by, by the mind. So when you see these kinds of conflicts, look for the place where what the Buddha did was to redefine a term and then understand that term everywhere else that occurs in those terms, okay? Um, another way to uh, understand what the real Buddha Dharma is, it has, has the same thing to do with, with consistency and, and things like that. If it is something that stands up to reasoning, the Dharma is completely understandable from the point of view of logic, it's completely understandable intellectually, the true Buddha Dharma. The point is that intellectual understanding doesn't make a difference. It's when at an intuitive level, your entire worldview reflects that understanding. That's what awakening is. When you come to stuff that relies on some, something supernatural or something that can't be understood, that is ineffable and uh, is only spoken of uh, uh, in, in, in terms of negatives and things like that, you say, ah, okay, this is something that's been put in there. This is something that is, is put in there to defend some views that some sect or some person held. This is not what the Buddha taught. The Buddha taught something that makes sense. It stands up to logic. As long as your logic... See, the thing about logic, it always depends on the principles that you use. There's always some axioms. There's always a set of assumptions. That's what's called Gödel's theorem. The mathematician Gödel proved that this was always the case and that it could never be otherwise. As long as your assumptions are the delusions of the world, then... Uh, it's going to be hard to see this. But if you take as the axioms the things that uh, the truth, then your logic is going to be totally, uh, you know, it, it's going to be totally correct. The other thing he said is it should be based on your experience. Does the teaching fit your experience? And you can apply this to what is, what is reputed to have been said by the Buddha. Is he talking about something that I have experienced? Or if I go and do the practices that he recommends, will I be able to experience? Pasiko, go and come and see for yourself. If it's consistent with that, then it's part of the, the real Buddha Dharma. Anything that stands outside of logic and uh anything that is that assumes something that is completely supernatural, only you have to keep in mind that some things may seem supernatural simply because we don't understand that they're really that they're really part of a causally interconnected wholeness that we're a part of. You know, I mean a lot of things that are, we take for granted today would have seemed supernatural a hundred years ago, right? Take a take a cell phone back to eighteen ninety and see what would happen. You know. That's but um, keep that in mind. But where do you find supernatural? Where do you find things from other religions? Where do you find inconsistencies? Where do you find things that don't stand up to logic? When where where you find things that can't that either don't fit with something that you've experienced before or that you can't experience, then be suspicious of it. And that will allow you to see the Buddha Dharma. That is what many people are trying to do today. And it represents a potential revival of the Buddhist Dharma in the world. And, hey, I'm trying to do that too. So I hope all of you do as well. Well, I took up way more of your time than I threatened to um, so I took away more of my time than I intended to at the cost of some people who are waiting to talk to me. <laughs> um, so it is the way it is. I, I loved having the opportunity to share my thoughts with you and uh, my best wishes for you. Enjoy this day and enjoy everything that comes after it.